Amen. God's amazing love, unchanging love. We're going to reflect on that a little bit more today. Last week, John Oliver, the host of an HBO program called Last Week Tonight, made television history last week with the largest one-time giveaway. John Oliver and his team decided to cancel the debt of 9,000 people who owed a total of $15 million. Slap of a button and some fanfare, and the debt was wiped away. Pretty cool, eh? I want you to imagine for a moment, just imagine, if Donald Trump was sitting up there in the balcony. (laughs) And Donald had been so inspired by our time of worship together and was sensing our love for God and our compassion for this community. And he's so moved by our love for each other that he walked down from the balcony and interrupted this sermon and said, Pastor Steve, I have something to say to your congregation. And in that moment, he turns to you and said, I've decided to cancel everybody's debt here today in Calvary. Now that would be a Sunday to remember. (laughs) Out of my $4.5 billion, I'm going to take care of it. Who's got a mortgage they want to get rid of? Who has some student debt that they want cleared up? How about that car loan? And, and the Donald would come and get his checkbook out and just write check after check. Paid for Harley. Paid for Alain. Pastor Duane. That house in Barrie, taken care of. Just like that. Now, I don't know if anybody wants to do that this morning. Just let me know. <laughs> We'd have a different kind of Sunday morning. But I'm told that John Oliver was really competing with Oprah. Back in 2004, she had set the record back then for an $8 million giveaway. She gave away 276 Pontiacs to her audience that day. But now John Oliver holds the new record for the all-time live television giveaway. As you think about debt and debt being canceled, I I want you to think about this morning this question. What do you owe God? What do you owe God? You see, religion tells us how we can work our way or how we can try to work our way to settle our debt, to pay our debt to God. But Scripture, God's Word, tells us something very different. It presents a debt cancellation plan that we don't work for. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn uh, to the Gospel of Luke And uh, this morning we're going to be in Luke 7. As we continue this series of Jesus the Storyteller, we're going to look at a story that's um, held in Luke 7, 36 to 50. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, the scripture will be on the screen. And uh, let's listen to this story this morning. Starting in verse 36 of chapter 7. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. 
Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured out perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, her many sins, have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, we have been celebrating this morning your amazing love, anticipating that moment when you come back and gather your children to be with you forever. Lord, I praise you for your grace and your mercy. And Father, I just ask this morning as we open your word together that, that what you want us to see and what you want us to hear and what you want us to apply to our lives, Lord, would come from you. Lord, may your Holy Spirit guide our time together as we seek to honor and glorify you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So in this section of scripture that we're looking at today, we actually have a story within a larger story. And in the larger story, we have Jesus alongside of two characters. And the two characters are Simon the Pharisee and a sinful woman. And as we look at the first character, Simon the Pharisee, we need to understand something about Pharisees. They were a very influential group in the day of Jesus Christ. And they emphasized meticulous observance of God's Old Testament laws. But in addition to the Old Testament commands, they added a whole bunch of extra biblical rules and traditions into their system of religion. In fact, they had 613 laws. Out of those 613 laws, 365 of them were in the negative. Don't do this. You can't do this. And 248 of them were in the positive. Here's the things that you must do. A total of 613 laws. And they believed that they could gain favor with God. They believed that they could obtain righteousness through observing these laws. And they were very um, outward in making sure that people knew that they were seeking to obey these laws in the ways that they prayed, in the ways that they took care of ceremonial washing and fasting. They didn't do their fasting in private. They let everybody know that they were taking care of these rules. And that led to a heartless and a cold and an arrogant system of religion. And it's in that context that Simon the Pharisee is presented. And so when we look at Simon, we 
we perhaps say, well, look, at least he was committed to observing God's laws. That's, that's a good thing. I mean, the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection and the eternal life. That's positive. Pharisees believed in angels and demons, and they anticipated the coming of the Messiah. Those are all good things. But unfortunately, they had built in a whole bunch of negative things that were not part of God's plan for the Jewish people. You see, they believed that their own religious laws were just as important as God's commands. And they tried to force other people uh, up to the standard that they themselves couldn't even, couldn't even meet. See, for them, salvation was about perfect obedience to these laws. And they completely ignored the ideas of grace and mercy in favor of this obsession with their legal detail. The truth was, they cared more about their obedience, their appearance, rather than a true heart change. So there's our one character, Simon the Pharisee. The other character that's presented in this story is the sinful woman. Let's take a look at her for a moment and understand what the scripture presents about her. When, she, when the scripture talks about her being a sinful woman, the word that's used there, it really describes someone who misses the mark. Now, not someone who's just missed the mark once. The idea is that they constantly miss the mark. This is really someone who is devoted to a life of sin, clearly a wicked person. Most people suspect that she was probably a prostitute, certainly an immoral woman, a woman of ill repute. And as this language is used in Scripture, we see that Jesus is often associating, in fact, he's criticized as someone who hangs around with tax collectors and sinners. Those two words are often used together. And very clearly, this woman was known in the town as a sinner. Everybody knew it. The other thing that we see in the scripture passage is that she wasn't invited to this gathering. She comes in in an intrusion. So here we have these two characters, Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman, put side by side, and we have a comparison. With Simon the Pharisee, we, some, we see somebody who looks at Jesus and is really indifferent about who Jesus really is. He presents himself as somebody who's very devout, who's holy, who's pious. Yes, he's religious. But when it comes to his relationship and his, and his interaction with Christ, he's really inconsiderate. Compared to this notorious sinner, this sinful woman who interacts with Jesus in such a passionate and such an attentive way, who comes to Jesus in humility, in repentance, and then and then presents this beautiful, amazing act of worship with tremendous generosity. These are our two characters in the main story. So what I want us to do is just to kind of walk through this passage and get a sense of what, of what the Lord is teaching us in this account. But as we do so, you've got to kind of change your cultural norm view, because we're used to things as they operate here in our society. But back in biblical times, there are some things that were a little bit different. The first thing that we notice in verse 36 is it tells us that they were reclining at a table. Now, Pastor Duane, I think if you were coming over to my house and you and I started to recline at the table, we'd be in trouble with Deb, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Sit up, Steve. Sit up, Pastor Duane. That's not the way we... That's not the way we eat at the table. But you see, in that society, the way that they would often gather around the table, the table would be quite low, 
and there would be some kind of some cushions that they would prop themselves up. It sounds pretty good, eh? They would, uh, they would prop themselves up on the left side, and they would eat with their, right, with their right hand. And as such, their feet would be extended away from the table, and they would kind of fashion themselves like a spoke around the table. And that's the view that we have of this dinner setting. And as such, in verse 37, when the woman who's a sinner, this woman of the city, when she comes in with her alabaster jar, she has access to Jesus' feet. Because they're not sitting underneath him. They're extended as they're reclining at the table. And this alabaster jar was, was something that, hold, that held precious things, very costly things. It was the most expensive thing that you could use to hold fine perfumes and ointments. And we see in verse 38 this amazing, beautiful picture as she comes in. And as she's weeping, as the tears are pouring out of her eyes, she wets Jesus with her tears. And then she does something again that's against the, the cultural norm there. She lets down her hair, which a, a woman would never do in public. And she lets down her hair, and with her hair, she wipes the tears off Jesus' feet. And she kisses his feet, anointing them with ointment. What an amazing picture. I want you to notice that in this passage, there's no record of her talking to Jesus. She's pouring out her love all through actions. And then we see in verse 39, so we're back to the character of Simon. Simon says to himself, he doesn't say it to anybody else, but in his inner thoughts, with indignant disgust, full of judgmentalism, he says, there's no way that Jesus could be a prophet. For if Jesus was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. For surely a prophet would not let a woman like this touch him. For that would make the prophet unclean. But of course, in verse 40, Jesus demonstrates not only that he's a prophet, but that he is the Son of God. As he indicates to Simon, he knows exactly what's going on in his inner thoughts. And Jesus answers, he answers Simon with this story now that we have within the larger story. And of course, what's laid out here is this picture of a money lender, a loan shark, who has two people that are indebted to him. Neither of the two people can pay back the debt. And in the account that we have here, it talks about one person owing 500 denarii and the other person owing 50 denarii. Now, we don't use denarii here, I don't think, uh, anymore, but what does that mean to us? Well, let me give you a picture. A denarii was kind of like a day's worth, a day's wage. So let's say for a moment, uh, you, you make $20 an hour. If you made $20 an hour, 500 days worth of that would be $80,000. Okay, so just use that number for a moment. One guy owes $80,000. The other person, $8,000. There's the difference. $80,000 versus $8,000. And of course, Jesus tells this story and then says that the money changer, the money lender forgives both debts and then he asks the question, who will love the money lender more? And Simon gives the answer. And then after Simon gives the answer, Jesus now calls Simon out. He indicates all of the things that Simon has missed in terms of treating him as a guest compared to the woman, this sinful woman. All of Simon's error. Well, first of all, he didn't wash Jesus' feet. That was the customary thing to do. 
walking in sandals in those roads with donkeys in front of you, Harley. I don't know what you'd be stepping in, but you'd need your your feet washed, right? He didn't offer to do that with Jesus. He didn't anoint Jesus' head with oil, which is how you treat a special guest. He didn't offer a kiss of greeting to the Lord. But look at this woman. In fact, I would like you to see this. He says to Simon, do you see this woman? For all of us here today, that's a question that I think we really need to resonate on. Stop for a moment. Do you see this woman? Do you see what she's doing in demonstrating her love to the Lord Jesus Christ? And he says, Simon, look, she's washed my feet with with her tears. And she's wiped my feet with her hair. And then Jesus says, she's not stopped. She has not ceased from kissing my feet. She hasn't. When's the last time you kissed somebody's feet? Some of you are smirking. Ted, when's the last time you kissed somebody's feet? <laughs> when they were a baby. It's not something that we think about. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ says, look at the way this woman has loved you. She has not ceased from kissing my feet. And she, and she calls Simon out. And then, and, then, and then he speaks to the woman, but he looks at Simon. And he says this, I tell you this. Though her sins are many, they are forgiven. And in verse 50, a powerful statement. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. You see, it wasn't her, it wasn't her actions that saved her. It wasn't this amazing act of devotion that ended up making things right between her and Jesus. It was her faith. But this creates a controversy in the dining experience. Well, you'll see there, in verse 49, the other guests that are there at this meal, they start to question, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus Christ, in this moment of telling the story and then pointing out the great disparity between these two characters, the way that Simon, the religious leader, the respected one, is interacting with Jesus compared to this notorious sinner, the sinful woman. How she is adoringly loving Jesus and coming in repentance to him. He points this out and then he reveals his true divinity and purpose as the forgiving savior, the son of God. There, there's just a few things, folks, that I want us to walk away from this story today, that things as I studied that really hit me. And the first is fairly obvious, but it's something that we all need to remember. Or perhaps um, you're a guest here this morning, you've never really thought about this, but here's the first idea. It's clearly seen in Jesus offering forgiveness to this sinful woman. Jesus is the source of our salvation. There's no other salvation other than through Jesus. He is the one, the only means by which our debts can be paid. Jesus is the source. Consider Ephesians 2 verse 8, a verse that many of you have learned. It's by grace that you have been saved. You see, you can't buy your way to salvation. You can't earn your way. You can't work towards salvation. You can't even fake your way to salvation. The only way to salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through grace alone, in Christ alone. You know, I think... um, 
Sometimes we get complacent about the word grace. We use it a lot. A lot. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Amazing grace. We were just singing about it. And um, I was reflecting on that, and I came across this story that really helps us to kind of maybe get a, get a human understanding into the idea of grace. Now, this story is kind of set into, in, a, in a setting that some of you maybe have, will have to use your imagination about, because those of us who grew up in educational settings that had some kind of threat of corporal punishment, you'll get this. If you haven't grown up on that, you'll just have to use your imagination. So here we go. Track with me. The boy stands defiantly with his head cocked back and his, and his hands clenched. And he says, go ahead, give it to me. I can take it. The principal looks down at the young rebel. How many times have you been here, son? The child sneers rebelliously. Apparently not enough. The principal gives the boy a strange look and says, you've been punished every time you've been here, have you not? Yeah, I've been punished, if that's what you want to call it. He throws out his small chest and says, go ahead, I can take whatever you can dish out. I always have. Carefully studying the boy's face, the principal says, are there any thoughts of punishment that come into your mind when you break our rules? Nope, I do whatever I want. Ain't nothing you people gonna do to stop me neither. The principal looks over at the teacher and says, what has he done this time? Teacher replies, fighting. He uh, took little Tommy and shoved his face into the sandbox. The principal turns and looks at the boy. Why did you do that? What did little Tommy do to you to deserve that? The boy replied, nothing. I didn't like the way he was looking at me, just like I don't like the way you're looking at me now. In fact, if I, think I, if I thought I could get away with it, I'd shove your face into something. The teacher stiffens and starts to rise in reaction, but a quick look from the principal settles the teacher down. The principal contemplates the child for a moment and then quietly says to the child, today, my young student, is the day that you're going to learn about grace. Grace? Isn't that something you old people do before you eat a meal? I don't need any of your stinking grace. Oh, but you do, the principal says. After studying the boy's face, he whispers, Yes, we all need grace. The boy glares at the principal as he continues. Grace, to understand it, is really about unmerited favor. You can't earn grace, my child. Grace is a gift, and it's always freely given. Grace means you will not be getting what you certainly deserve. The boy looked puzzled. You're not going to whoop me? You mean you're just going to let me walk? The principal looked down. He looks down at the unyielding child and says, yes, I'm going to let you walk. The boy studies the face of the principal and says, no punishment at all? You're not even going to punish me even though I socked Tommy and shoved his face into the sandbox? Oh, there has to be punishment, the principal says. What you did was wrong, and there will always be consequences for our actions. There will be punishment. Grace is not an excuse for doing wrong. I knew it, sneered the boy. Holding out his hands, he says, let's get on with it. The principal nods, nods towards the teacher and says, bring me the belt. The teacher presents the belt to the principal, who carefully folds it in two and then hands it back to the teacher. He looks at the child and says, I want you to count the blows. The principal slides out 
behind the desk and walks over to the child. The child stands defiantly with his hands outstretched, but the principal gently moves the child's expected hands down to his side. Turning to the teacher, the principal stretches out his own hands and says, begin. The belt slaps against the principal's outstretched hands. Crack! The young boy jumps. Shock registers across his face. One, he whispers. Crack! Two, his voices start to raise. Crack! Three, the child's unable to believe this. Crack! Four, tears start to well up in the eyes of the young rebel. Okay, stop. That's enough. Stop. Crack! The belt continues to come down on the principal's swollen hands. Crack! The child flinches again with another blow. Tears start to stream down the child's face. Crack! Crack! No, please! Please stop! I'm the one who did it. I'm the one who deserved punishment. Stop! Please stop! The boy sobs. Still the blows continue. Crack! Crack! Finally, it's over. The principal, with sweat glistening across his forehead, turns to the former rebel and kneels down beside him. Carefully cradling his, his swollen hands on the child's face, the principal so softly says, this, my boy, is grace. You know, we sing about grace. We read about grace. We talk about grace. But do we really grasp it? Does it move us? Does it impact us? Does it shape us? Philip Yancey writes this about grace. The critics are right. Grace is unfair. We deserve God's wrath, and yet we get God's love. We deserve punishment, and yet we get forgiveness. We don't get what we deserve. Paul puts it ironically. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. We work hard every day for wages, but they vanish at death. We do nothing to deserve grace, and we get eternal life. If you want fairness, try a religion like Hinduism, which says you have to go through thousands, perhaps even millions of reincarnations to pay for all your sins. It is unfair that a human rights abuser like the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, gets forgiven, or a murderer, an adulterer like King David gets forgiven or a thief hanging on the cross in the last moments has a conversion just before death. Yes, grace is unfair, gloriously unfair. Jesus is the source of our salvation. Through grace alone, in Christ alone, we have access. But see, it doesn't stop there. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, by grace you have been saved, yes, through what? Through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one can boast. You see, in that verse 50 of Luke 7, Jesus makes it so clear that it wasn't this woman's acts of love that earned her God's favor. It was her faith. Her faith had saved her. Jesus is the source. He's the means of our salvation. But we access that salvation through this exchange, through a currency exchange of faith. There's lots of great passages about faith and about grace in the New Testament. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified, having been declared righteous, having been acquitted by God, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11.6, 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Without faith, oh, sorry, we walk by faith and not by sight. And then in Galatians 2, verses 16, and then in verse 20, it says this. We are not justified by the works of the law. We can't earn our way to God, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Jesus is the source. We access that source through faith. You see, there's so many people who are seeking to make things right with God through self-effort. And yet God is calling us to respond to him in faith. In self-effort, we go through this motions of trying to please God through good works. But faith tells us we need to trust in Christ. Self-effort tells us it's about discipline and about following rules, just like the Pharisees. But faith is about confessing and submitting and surrendering to Christ's control. Self-effort says, I'm in charge. I'm responsible for, for determining things. But faith says... Christ is Lord, and you live your life in the Holy Spirit power. Self-effort says, I can do this alone. I'm responsible. Self-motivation, I, I can make this happen. But just like we sang at the beginning of the service, we're reminded that our strength is found in Christ alone. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. You see, self-effort really is about pride and always ends in disappointment because we can never make it work. And yet faith results in joy and love and gratitude. Jesus is the source. Faith is the access. But the last picture we have here is this picture that results have from repentance, that results out of God's grace through faith in an extraordinary outpouring of love. What a beautiful picture that this sinful woman gives to us as she responds to Christ's forgiveness. You see, our love and our gratitude to Christ is demonstrated by our actions. In view of God's mercy, it tells us how we respond to that. Do we have an attitude of being sorry for our sins, like this woman is? Do we come to Christ in humility and relate to him as our Lord, subjecting ourselves to his lordship? And respond to him in sacrificial love, sacrificial service, true devotion. So I have some questions for us to consider, for, for me to consider. You know, often we find ourselves in a few different categories. Perhaps you're like me. I, praise God for Christian parents. I was saved as a young boy. My dad led me to the Lord, to the Lord as a young boy. And I think sometimes when we come to faith early, and we have a great children's program here. Thank you, Rebecca and Calvin and all of you volunteers who pour into our kids, and we need to do that. But sometimes when we come to faith early, we can take God's grace and mercy for granted and find ourselves really kind of ignoring our sinfulness. Perhaps some of you are on the other side of that, that you, that you would say, Pastor Steve, if you knew what I had done, you would understand that there's no hope for me. I'm too bad for God's mercy. I'm beyond hope. And yet we're reminded in this picture here that God's mercy is for everyone. It was for Simon, who thought he was too good for Christ. 
it was for this woman who was clearly the, the center of the city. Do I really appreciate his grace? Do I really understand his mercy? You see, Jesus in this setting honors the sinful woman and rebukes the religious leader. Praise God for Jesus Christ. He is our God, and he paid our debt. It's finished. Our debt has paid in full. You know, in a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table, and, and there's a passage, and, and I'll read from it again, uh, that we often read in 1 Corinthians 11. And uh, it, it, it gives us this setting, of course, of what it means to gather around the Lord's table. But there's a verse that we often don't consider, and it's verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11. And it says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a man ought to, to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing an unworthy manner. Folks, if you are a follower of Christ, I implore all of us to not take for granted God's amazing grace and his love and his mercy. That would be unworthy. That would be sin. That would be the sin of indifference, the sin of arrogance. Perhaps some of you are here today and you have never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never understood that Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation. It's in his name alone. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I would ask you today, I would implore you today, in this moment right now, to confess your sins and to confess Jesus as Lord and invite him, ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Commit the rest of your life to follow him. And you will have the joy of salvation just like this woman had the joy of salvation. For those of us who are believers, let's not take for granted that Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation. And that's our faith in him that allows us access to that and to give him thanks. So we are called to judge ourselves. Judge ourselves and discern, is there sin of indifference in my life? Has my heart grown cold? Have I lost my first love? Have I become arrogant in my relationship with the Lord? Jesus calls to us calls to us to say you can be forgiven. Examine yourselves. I'm going to invite the team to come up and as we prepare for this time around the Lord's table, we're going to sing this, this hymn that says, the blood of Jesus speaks for me. Though my accuser wants to remind me of all the things that I have done wrong. Though my accuser wants to say, Steve, you're not worthy. I point to my Savior and say, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who has canceled my debt. My debt is paid in full. Praise God, I am saved. Let's stand together. Praise God for Jesus Christ, the source of our salvation. Praise him that there's nothing that we can do to earn that salvation except to step forward in faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then respond to his amazing grace, his amazing love, his mercy with our love extraordinary love. May we look at this demonstration of love as a model for our lives, to not be indifferent at what the Savior has done for us. Amen?
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, thank you for the, the way it refreshes our hearts, the way it gives us a, a fresh understanding of what you have done for us. Lord, your grace is amazing. We don't deserve it. We're like that little boy in the principal's office when we stand before you, and, and yet you have taken, Lord Jesus Christ, you have taken our punishment for us, and we deserved it. Father, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would live lives that echo out, that demonstrate your love in us with grateful hearts. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit's power to do this, Lord, that we'd be shaped by your word, and that we would walk in your spirit to be models of your love to our community, to our friends, to our family, to those lost around. We pray this all in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God's blessing on you.